I was once with um, the the founder of of Waze. We were I was doing a presentation and we were in the backstage. He's a super like a high like um, he invested in a lot of companies, essentially invested. And he said one of the main reasons why all these early stage companies fail is because the guys don't want to execute, they don't want to take the hard decisions. And the hard decision is firing people, firing the co-founder. And these guys, once they fire, they go bankrupt. And they know how because they had the wrong co-founder. But how long ago do you know you had the wrong co-founder? It was from day two. All right, let's go. Federico, how's it going, man? Good. Thanks for, for the invite. You're welcome. Uh, so, so today on the show, we have Federico Vega. Federico is the founder and CEO of Frecci.com, which is a logistics and trucking technology business here in Brazil that was recently valued at $1 billion. Was that last year? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. You, so you've had, you've had quite the ride over the past decade building this business. Um, you've raised nearly $400 million um, based on what I, what I can see. And I want to spend some time talking about that fundraising journey today. Um, but before we get into it, maybe you can tell the audience about Frecci.com and kind of the founding origins of the business. Sure. Um, so... I created the business, I'm a solo founder. I created the business the business in 2014. Um, and basically what we do is to help the large trucks that travel between cities to find freights on real time through their mobile phone. The, the, the truck driver uses the mobile phone. And by doing so, we enable the truck drivers to avoid deadheading or going back home empty. Um, so they make more money at the end of the month because they are moving more freights. The owner of the freight saves money because they are using the excess capacity of the trucks. Um, we have an impact um, because we generate less amount of CO2 emissions for Brazil is the third largest trucking market in the world. So we are saving a lot of CO, a lot of CO2 emissions and we decrease traffic jam because you have less amount of trucks on the roads because when you are operating at full capacity rather than in Brazil, truck, truckers operate with, with between 40 and 60% excess capacity. So basically, we have twice as much trucks as we need to move the economy. Mm. And 80 to 90% of the entire economy is moved by trucks because there is no railroad or very limited railroad. So technologies like Frecci.com can help a lot. Um, to improve the infrastructure of the country, if you will, or, or to make a better use of the existing infrastructure of the country. Yeah, so you're, you're optimizing the, the entire trucking system as a whole. Um, how, how are you, who, who do you consider your customers and, and how are you helping them optimize their businesses? Yeah, so our customers are the truck drivers. We have 750,000 unique active truck drivers in the platform, active. Um, more than 1.5 million register, which is pretty much the entire market. Um, about 12% of the market is active on a daily basis on the app of all the trucks in Brazil. That's our main customer because we exist to help truck drivers to have 
to improve their business in a way and to improve their life. Um, and we also have on the others, is, we are a marketplace. So the guys that post the freights are shippers, companies that have freights, large amount of freights that needs to be moved from one city to, to the other, which is basically the companies, the businesses that, that produce or that, that, that's, yeah, that, that, that produce whatever Brazil is exporting, importing, and consuming. Mm-hmm. Um, on the top of that, we build, we are like not different to, to eBay, if you will, that you have the marketplace and, and we have a payment system with credit inside the platform to execute the payments. So today, by number of bank accounts, we are the largest bank in Brazil for truckers. We have 170,000 um, active accounts uh, and we achieved uh, and we just opened three months ago. So we wow. were a large marketplace and then we opened our fintech and after we deployed the digital wallets, it just exploded because we have so much traffic in the platform. We are uh, doing like 80,000, we are putting freights in 80,000 trucks daily, big trucks. How are the freight companies doing business before your platform existed? So before we, so, so this is funny, and this is how I got, because I don't come from trucking. Yeah, and, and you're I also discovered not from Brazil. This, yeah, I'm not from Brazil, I'm from Argentina. And then I was traveling by bicycle. I'm from Patagonia, Argentina. And I discovered this business, or, or how the business works in Argentina, by, by, because I was doing a lot of bicycle with a, a mountain bike group at the time when I was a kid. And then I did a lot of mountain biking everywhere. And then when you travel by bicycle, you tend to stop at truck stops because there you have all the infrastructure to spend the night. You have good showers, yep. it's safe, and you don't have to enter a city that sometimes is far away when you are in a bicycle. And there is when I start talking to truckers at truck stops. And I discovered that truck stops are like offline marketplaces where the shipper rents like, like a little shop, say outside of Sao Paulo, you will have these truck stops where the shipper goes and they rent like a little shop and they, they, in a piece of paper, they write, for example, they have 30 tons of uh, sugar or coffee and I need to send this coffee from Sao Paulo to Rio and I'm gonna pay X. And then they post it in a window of this little shop. So the truck stops look like a shopping mall, but rather than shoe, you have this piece of paper that describes the load that has to move from point A to point B and how much they pay. So the truckers go there and they spend an average of five days waiting for the right load for them to go back home. Sometimes that load ne- never comes. So they waste five days waiting at, at, at the truck stop and then they have to deadhead. And then the shipper has, it's very costly because they have to send people and rent these places at the truck stop and then you have to find a trucker on the road and you don't know if the trucker is a real trucker or not. Uh, the, 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 the due diligence is very poor and the consequence of that is a lot of freight robbery mm. and a lot of truckers getting kidnapped. Um, so it's danger, dangerous. Someone, when I arrived to Brazil, someone said that moving freight in Brazil in 2014 was more dangerous than moving freight in, in Afghanistan. Wow. Um, and it was true. And then I thought, wow, Brazil is very dangerous. But then I, when I, you know, the good thing about not coming from the industry is that you have to study and you have to learn. You're like a kid learning everything mm-hmm. uh, if you want to be successful in the industry because I didn't know anything. So I, I started asking questions. And then I discovered 
that that the freight Brazil wasn't the, the, the amount of freight robbery was not related to how dangerous Brazil is. It was more related to organized crime, in the sense that more than 90% of the freights you either had the trucker involved, the driver, or you have an employee at the at the factory that is is moving the freights involved. And I also discovered that you can avoid freight robbery if you are very careful when you open the door not to let the wrong people coming in. Or basically, in other words, you can avoid 90% of freight robbery by implementing the same KYC that the bank does on you or any person before they lend you money. So solving freight robbery in Brazil it was as easy as going to a bank and starting to hire these data people that are specialists on frauds, mm. and they do KYC. Um, and then the Financial Times ran a story on how we are fighting freight robbery with data in Brazil. Um, so they came to the office. They spent like two days at the office looking at how we do it. Wow. Yeah. You, you started the business uh, originally. It was called Cargo X. This was yeah. roughly 10 years ago, is that right? Yeah. What was the, what was the first product that you guys offered uh, these truckers? So when I, was, when I was on a bicycle, the good thing about being in a bicycle is that I didn't go to one truck stop, but I went like to 100 truck stops in Brazil. Um, and in everything, they say that if everyone complains about the same problem, there is an opportunity. So every single truck stop I went, the trucker would say, look, Brazil is very bad for trucking because I don't make a lot of money. I make little money. And on the top of that, the owner of the freight, they don't pay me for my service. I deliver the freight and I don't get paid. And then in every single truck stop, truck stop they will say that. And then the shipper will say, no, no, no. They make a lot of money. It's very, very expensive to move freight in Brazil. It's one of the most expensive places in the world to move freight because these guys charge a lot to move the freight. And they, are, and, and they rob the freight. They steal the freight from you. And the trucker was also complaining that they get kidnapped. kidnapped. Uh, so I thought, well, on the one side, you have these guys saying that it's very expensive, and these guys steal the freight. On the other side, the other guy says, no, I don't get paid a lot. They actually don't pay me sometimes. And on the top of that, they kidnap me when I go to pick up the freight. So both complain about being dangerous. Both one say I pay a lot, the other say I don't make a lot of money. So I thought, well, maybe someone is taking the money out in the middle. And that's the famous middleman. So mm. who is the middleman? And when we start investigating that, we discovered that the middleman was the inefficiency of the market. If you spend 40 to 60% of the time empty as a truck driver. In other words, if you go on holiday 60%, six months, uh, every year you take six month holidays, you probably won't make a lot of money. Um, so... So what we built, the first product was an app. So I work at the truck stop in Brazil, in Sao Paulo, called Terminal de Cargas Fernand Gias. I went there, I opened a little shop, I start posting the freight in the window, and then I said to the truckers, look, if you download this app, then you're gonna have access to a lot of freights, much more than what you find here. And then I said to the other guys that were posting freight in the window, if you, if you let me list your freight in my app, you're going to find many more trucks and you're so it's kind of like tinder in a way like if you go to a nightclub and you want to find a girlfriend or a boyfriend you're not limited to the nightclub anymore so that's what we did so we move 
the truck stop online, and that was our first first products. Cool. What what year was this? 2014. And did, had you raised any money at that point? Hmm. I sold my flats, so I was. So I actually started a little bit before 2014. It was 2012 when I started the prototype. Mm-hmm. Before I actually moved to the truck stop, I built the prototype before I arrived to the truck stop, the initial technology. And, and I had a friend. I was living in London. I was working at JP Morgan. And a friend said, you have two jobs. One job that gives you the money during the day and the other one that takes the money away because it was financing the initial, the minimal viable product, if you will, I financed that with the salary from JP Morgan. And that was the worst decision I've ever, it, it was the worst I could do because I built the products um, on, on, on a market research, if you will, that I did when I was cycling, but it wasn't enough. So I built the product that was, was wrong. So, and I spent a year working at nights, building the wrong product. I spent a lot of money on developers, freelancers, that were not good because they were freelancers. They were doing like different stuff. They were not, they didn't, you know, they, they didn't, they only worked for the money. So that was actually the worst mistake. Um, but then when I quit JP Morgan, I moved to Brazil and I moved and I started working at the, at the truck stop. Every single day I would learn a lot because I was talking to truckers, to shippers, and I was taking everyone for, for a coffee and learning and listening and asking questions. And then I, I used my savings then again, this is 2014. Startups didn't exist in Brazil at the time. Yeah, I think the largest startup was like $25 million raise. And, yeah, and there's, it was probably, not there's probably the, less than 20 companies that had been venture-backed at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was no venture. There were like five investors only, and they couldn't. You know those investors that they say they invest, but they don't invest a lot? It's like one or two deals a year. Mm. That, that was the market. Like You didn't see a lot of. No one wanted to work for a startup either. Like Jack Ma said that when he started Alibaba, he said, we will open the door and whoever, whoever <laughs> came in, we just hire because no one wanted to work for a startup. Yeah. Cool. And when, when did you raise your first funding round? So the first round was in 2015. That was how yeah. much? It was 250. I, I raised the money. It's funny because I raised the money because I couldn't pay my lawyer, mm. which is a great guy. And then he said, I said, I cannot pay. I had to incorporate the company and couldn't pay him anymore. I spent all my, my savings. And then he said, look, how much you need? I said, 250. And he said, well, I'm going to put the money, but I'm going to put 100,000. But the condition is that you have to raise the rest of the money. And some of that money have to come from your former boss at JP Morgan. Mm. So I have to go, I quit at JP Morgan, then I have to go back at JP Morgan and beg for this guy to invest. And he wasn't an investor, so I had to beg a lot. Like I went to London like three times. What, what and was then his finally, role at the, at the bank? He was, I think he was head of liquidity management at, okay. at the time, at JP. Now he's in City. He actually invested, he's a great guy. He's still an investor. Um, and then he brought his friends but he didn't make it easy because I had my flat in Argentina and he said, I invest, but you have to invest the same as me. And I already spent all my savings. So I have to go and put my flat for sale. And then they invested with the condition that I will actually put the money. So I sold my flat and I put the money and we raised $260,000. That was the first round we did. Amazing. 
So let, let's get into the into the topic of investors and fundraising. You have what I'd call an A-list group of investors and board members on your cap table. I'm, I'm going to read a few of the names here. Uh, Valor Capital Group, Paulo Vedas, who's the co-founder of 99, Reed Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn. Uh, he was also one of the first investors in Facebook and part of the PayPal Mafia. Qualcomm Ventures, Blackstone, BTG Pactual, Henry Kravis, one of the founders of KKR, Jeb Bush, former governor of Florida, brother of George W. Bush, Oscar Salazar, one of the co-founders of Uber, Goldman Sachs, SoftBank, and Tencent. Did I, did I miss anybody? Um, um, Lightrock is another investor. Blackstone, I don't know if you mentioned, but yeah, yeah, but that's about it. So, so what is the what is the secret uh, to attracting a world class group of investors like this? I, I think um, I think investors typically look for three things: they look for large addressable markets, they look for for people that are 100% invested in whatever they are doing, like they are obsessed with, with, um, with, with making the company successful. So they look at for those indications and they are looking for people they can trust. I raised money from Valor um, in 2015, too, the second, the Series A, if you will. And, and I became good friends with Valor, but like a year after they invested, I asked um, Scott Sobel, one of the founding partners of Valor, I asked him, why do you invest? We were, one of, we were one of the first investments they did. And he said, because we trust you. So in the process, we did like five interviews with three different partners and their analysts. And I didn't know, but they were asking me the same questions and then they compare that I was telling the truth. And then Goldman invested in the Series B. And I also asked the same question to Goldman. We were, I think we were the first, the first or one of the first technology startups in Brazil at the time, at least for that period of time, you know, since 2010. And we were one of the first ones, if not the first one. And then I asked the same question and they said, trust, basically. They, we, wanted, we wanted to know that we could trust you. And I think if they trust you and then you deliver what you promised, I mean, integrity is like you will do what is right even if no one is looking at, mm -hmm. at you. And if you do that consistently over a you know, period of time, they will start trusting you. And if you treat everyone the same, um, you know, you go to a, to a restaurant and you treat the waiter badly and then you're treating the investor very nicely, that, that's an indication of this guy is someone you cannot trust. Yep. Um, I don't know. They are like, like, like points, but I, I think it's trust and then one investor brings the other. M most of my investors were introduced by existing investors, if not everyone. O o every single investor we have was introduced by an investor. I, I never, because we have something that play really, really against us. Um, and looking backwards, if I have to do a logistic company in Brazil, I wouldn't do it. Mm. When I started here, there were five Brazilian investors. 
none of them invested on us. And I went to, because they were only five, I had to go to them like 20 times until they just put me on spam, basically. They didn't take any more meetings with me. Yeah. And one of the guys, he said to me, look, uh, this guy, he never actually invested, but we actually became friends. Maybe because I knocked his door so many times. Um, and then he decided to help me out without giving me advice and not money. And he said, look, let me be clear with you why you are not raising money and you are not going to be able to raise money. First, you are trying to disrupt logistics in Brazil, which is an extremely complex industry and you don't come from logistics. Second, you are trying to disrupt a complex industry in one of the most complex and bureaucratic markets in the world and you are not even Brazilian. You don't speak Portuguese. Third, you don't know anyone in Brazil. You, 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 like, you are a complete outsider. You have no contacts whatsoever. And, and, and fourth, and probably the worst one, is 2014 is the World Cup. Argentina made it to the, to the finals or the semifinals. And, and, you, and, and everyone hates Argentinos in Brazil right yeah. now because <laughs> of the World Cup. So you are not going to have a right time. Uh, and then the funny story is that we never got a Brazilian investor until like Series D or something like that. But when we were going to the state, so that was Brazil, but then in the States, it was like, okay, give me a benchmark in the United States. And there was no benchmark. The benchmark was in China because mm -hmm. of the structure of the logistic. So it was really tough to raise money because of that too. Um, so it wasn't easy for us to go and knock the door and someone say, yeah, I'm going to invest. Um, we had to, the message that we will pass to investors have to be like really, really clear, explaining what we are doing, which is really complex in a complex industry that is hard to understand. And the benchmark is China. And go, good luck to go and understand how an industry works in China. Um, so I think the only way for us to raise money was one investor will recommend us to the next investor. Yeah, and, and if none of the Brazilian investors are putting money in and you go to the foreign investors, they're probably all asking, where are the Brazilian right. investors on the cap table? And if the yeah. Brazilian investors are not investing, how am I going to get comfortable? Yeah, we have, now we have two institutional Brazilian investors. They are not Brazilian, but they have teams in Brazil that are really good. One of them is uh, Lightrock, former LGT. Um, and the other one is um, Farlon, the hedge fund, the American hedge fund. They are, uh, Farlon is, is, a, is a smaller investor but still, like big presence in Brazil, they understand the market really well. But those guys have a level of understanding now and sophistication that they understand the industry and they don't need a benchmark. But also, I had to learn Portuguese before I get the investment. I have to learn the industry. So by the time I arrived to these guys, I showed that, well, maybe... So th there was a competitor. This is a story I, I told to several investors. There was a competitor when I started that raised 100 million reais or like $30 million and I had nothing. So I was spending time in, at, the, at the truck stop and this guy was in his office, in a nice office with $30 million, which was a lot at the time. And this guy was like, look, I was the president of a transportation company, have all the connections in the market. I understand this market upside down. Um, I know how to run a company because I've done this for like 30 years. So I know my staff. I'm the winner, so he, he raised the money. But the problem is that in technology, things change so quickly that if you have a lot of experience, Too and much you baggage. assume that you understand some stuff, then you're gonna fail. And I'll give you an example. I went to a truck stop, and I said to the trucker, download this app, and they, what is an app? 
I don't have smartphones. Mm. So I have to build a website for the wife, the kids to look for freights for the trucker. And mm. that's how we started. And this guy built a very heavy app and started doing a lot of advertising and started spending money. Then when the guys got smartphones, um, they didn't have a space in the smartphones. So you have to create like a link to a website. It wasn't a real app. And then the sign up wasn't an email because the tracker didn't understand what an email was. Um, so this competitor of us, they put an email, but the tracker didn't have emails. It, was it, uh, I assume today, there's a lot of informality in this industry as well. No, I, I think what's ha there is informality, but also the trucking force went from zero to a hundred very quickly. They never own a computer. They mm. never play with a computer. They never played with emails. So they went from the offline world to having WhatsApp, um, but they don't have emails. The, the, the phone numbers, they change it very quickly. So they were, those were things that if you were not there with a tracker at the time, even if you have hundreds of years of experience in logistics, you wouldn't get. Mm. So at the end of the day, being an outsider, and this is what I show to investors, like being an outsider, it actually played in our favor because how comes this guy went bankrupt and we, we grew so fast? And that was because we didn't have the money to spend in advertising. So the only way to make it work was to get our hands dirty and stay there on the ground, um, talking to our users constantly, constantly, constantly for years. And, and this is something that we still do today. We like nothing, like, like I say to our, now we have like almost 10 years of How many employees do you in have the industry. Today? We have 909. Um, so almost a thousand employees. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah, early days, it makes sense. You're talking to, to truckers all the time. It's you and a couple other people. How are you talking to customers today? Who, who on the team is talking to customers? Are you, are you still talking to customers on a regular basis? Yeah, I talk to customers on a regular basis. Um, but that doesn't make the trick anymore because CEOs say, oh, yeah, I spend my time talking to customers. That's like the team has to talk to customers. Otherwise, you don't build the company. So I, I still do go like talk to customers. Um, I talk to truckers. When I'm traveling in my car, I always stop truck stops. I ask truckers if they are using the app, what they think. But this is because it's me. Mm -hmm. I don't have to do it anymore if I don't want. What I do have is a massive research team. Um, so the researchers, they talk to customers all the time and we make decisions only based on data. And data means ask the customer and then test. Because the customer may say, I want this. You know, like they, they say if Henry Ford, he asked what people wanted. They want a thousand horses. Yeah. Or they want more powerful horses. But sometimes you have to ask the customer, then you have to, to look at the data with the experience you have. You may do something slightly different and you do a minimal viable product. You test the product and if it works, you start building on that. Um, but it's important not to say, no, 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 man, look, trust me. I spent weeks at the truck stop. I know this. Do it this way. It's going to work. Don't waste time with this. That's the quickest way to, to fail because building software is really expensive. It takes time. Then users, then users don't use it. So how, you how have to build the, can you, yeah. can you walk us through the process of, because you guys have several uh, business lines today. You started out as a trucking marketplace, essentially. You launched a bank recently for truckers. What was the process of customer discovery to figuring out that your truckers needed a bank account and, and how did you go about building that for them? 
So the bank account was easier because we are seeing like, you know, it's just like, again, if, you know, they say if you want to have a, an idea for a business, go in a taxi, talk to 10 taxi drivers and they are going to give you like 10, 10 problems repeatedly, then you have opportunities there for the city. Um, in our case, just go to the to the, hot, the, 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 the customer service people and, and like, we look at retention and we look at why we are getting the churn and, and what's going on and the truckers are like, look, I'm getting kidnapped. And these guys are not paying me. I deliver the freight and they don't pay me. So in a way, to stop freight robbery, and, and, and the, we start with a problem. We have a lot of freight robbery because we move an offline market online. Now everyone is blaming us because we gave transparency to the markets. So insurance companies are blaming us. Companies are blaming us. Truckers are blaming us. Whomever walks is blaming us now in the trucking market. So we said we need to fix this or we're gonna start having a negative network effects where you destroy the business. So how do we fix this? And to fix this, you need to know what the trucker loaded, when, and for whom. And in order to do that, I need to control the transaction. Because if I do that, I'm gonna control, like if you didn't pay the trucker, I know, because you pay through the platform, I know which freight the trucker got and when because the payment was executed. So it's no different than eBay or, or Amazon or Mercado Libre. You can compare, um, I, I, never, I can never pronounce Craigslist. 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 Yeah, versus Airbnb. Mm. Um, Airbnb is safer. Yeah. So safely means a lot. It's a massive disruption in trucking because freight robbery costs a lot of money. We are talking of freight that is like $500,000, $100,000 upwards in, in a truck. So basically you start with the problem and then you find a solution rather than saying, oh, everyone is building a FinTech and they have great multiples. So every, now I need to have a digital wallet. So digital wallets became last year, they were the, the new Groupon. Every single business will have a digital wallet. And then you ask, but why do you want a digital wallet? And no one will give you a, clean, a, a clear answer. In my case, I come from finance. I hate finance, I, and I promised myself I will never work in banking again. And now we actually own probably one of the largest fintechs in LATAM for truckers, um, and, and it's growing fast. But it's, it's not, I didn't have the option. Um, we are lending money to, to our shippers mm. because they needed the money, and they are struggling to get the cash in the bank. And then we realized that with the data points we have and the usage of the platform, the, the stickiness of the platform enable us to lend money in a more efficient way than, than banks. And we had to lend the money so that these guys will use the platform rather than the offline market at the beginning to change the behavior. But after we did that, we learned that we are actually good at, at providing, we have an edge over other financial institutions. So if we are here to bring efficiency, it has to be done. It's difficult. You can break a company by lending money if you do it wrongly. So I have to go and learn credits. I have to create a risk culture of, you know, uh, associated with credits inside the company. Um, and, but we did it because we had to do it, not because we wanted. Yeah, and, and uh, having talked to you before, one of the things you are great at um, and, and we talked about this A-list group of investors that you have on board, is attracting the right investors and partnering with the right advisors who can help you 
fill in the in the knowledge gaps where you might not be so strong how, how, what's your general framework for um partnering with these these folks uh using them once they're on your cap table um networking with them to actually uh to actually get time with them and and you know present your your business to them so first i think the great investors is always uh it depends great investors and great employees or great people depends it's, it's also you cannot look at that on a standalone basis you have to look at it with the company for example a, a nice private equity company is not going to work really well with the tech business in my case my tech business means uh profits are secondary to 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 to, to market leadership so profits today are secondary to, 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 for, for, for market leadership tomorrow. So you kind of like the way we executed for a long time was not charging, growing fast, and then we start printing revenue. A great private equity is not gonna be okay with that. So that's one thing. The other thing that worked really well with us is that in my case, our board of directors, they are very aware of what they don't know. So there is nothing uh, worse than trying to be brilliant or, or smart, show that you are brilliant or smart on areas that you don't know. So in our case, I think it's very clear. Um, to me, it's very clear on, on the things that I don't know, and that's the most important thing. So I listened to my investors on the areas that they are experts, and they are really able to help me a lot on that. And, and by that, I mean like, if you have an investor that build network effect businesses, that investor has a lot of experience. So I'm willing to, to listen. And sometimes even if I don't agree, I tend to go with, with, with his or her recommendation. Uh, obviously I do a little bit more of research. So I convince myself that this is the right path. When it's capital markets, I have tons of investors that know much more about capital markets than me. Um, so I think that's what makes the cap table work really well, is when you have people that understands, they're aware of what they don't know and they're aware of what they know, then, then the, the, the pieces connect really well. So I have different investors with different knowledge. I, I have investors that know network effect really well in the case of Tencent's. Um, I have investors that know capital markets really well in the Did case Tencent of Goldman Sachs. invest in a similar business in China? Yeah. And, and have, you, have you been able to leverage that knowledge and that, that network of theirs to help you build your business here in Brazil? What are the similarities? Yeah, but, but no. So the, that business in China, the co-founder, one of the guys that built it, he left um, on the IPO. And then that guy became involved with us. He's a member of our strategy committee today. So, and I went and, so my job is to bring the knowledge on the business. So I went to China three or four times now to meet these guys. I even got involved with one of the co-founders, but I met everyone there, like former employees, existing employees, C-levels, founders. Um, um, and also in the States, similar businesses in the States, even though they are slightly more different than compared to the Chinese business. Um, but our, like in the case of Tencent, they have WeChat. Hmm. So they understand the network effects of, of 
how the network effect plays and so we are aligned on like they, they see so many different companies that they are able to contribute um, when we look at the strategy. Um, same happens with with capital markets, etc., and other type of businesses. Yep. But you know, sometimes I think the best investors are the ones that a let you work. They don't interfere stay with your operations. Stay out of the way, but they also expect you to do the right thing. I was once with um, the the founder of, of Waze. We were, I was doing a presentation and we were on the backstage. And then he mentioned, we were a group of people and he said, he's like, he's a super like a high, like um, he invested in a lot of companies, essentially invest, invest. And he said, one of the, of the main reasons why all these early stage companies fail is because the guys don't want to make, they don't want to execute, they don't want to take the, the, the the hard decisions and the hard decision is firing people firing mm. the co-founder and these guys when you ask them once they fire they go bankrupt and they know how ah, because i had the wrong co-founder but how long ago do you know you have the wrong co-founder yeah it was from day two they don't have the courage they took to a make year. the decision yeah and then i think if i was an investor i will expect the same from the like you know when you go and you tell the entrepreneur look man you have to fire people. The, the economy is going south. You, you have to. Oh, no, no, because I'm like pro people. I'm pro like, yeah, but I invested in a company, not in a, uh, you know, we are, we are a for-profit business here. And, and you have to think on, on the people that stay. If you don't fire and you don't make the right decision, the company is going to go bankrupt. Yeah, we saw, we saw um, this a lot this past so year, think, back in yeah. April, May, when I started hearing from folks in Silicon Valley that, like get ready we're about to enter tough economic times a lot of the founders were not taking the advice of you know increase your runway decrease your burn um because they were afraid of having those hard conversations with their employees with their business partners with whoever um and a lot of them now are massively regretting that decision yeah or they just do it too late so uh, another problem is, is like, you know, when you say the investors, I think the investors are going to help you out to read the capital markets because sometimes, you know, I'm sitting in Brazil, mm -hmm. I'm sitting on like truck stops, like executing, but that's half of the job. The other half is like, if we are taking money from the capital market, from investors, it's your job to understand what's going on, not only in Brazil at the macroeconomic level, but in the States, in Europe with the geopolitical problems. You need to read the markets as well as an equity trader. So the best way to do that is to ask your investors because for sure your investors, in my case, my investors have better knowledge of what's going on in the markets than, so I ask, do you see the markets? We start asking, I remember Tencent told me November, 2021, they said, man, um, keep your dry powder. The market is slowing down. We think the party is over. This was November 2021. When did you do your last and then fund round? November 2021, after we closed the rounds. That was the last, the last round. That was, um, that was 200 And we dollars. actually did the round because 200. But we did the round because we saw the markets slowing down. So we thought, let's, let's put money in the bank. The market's going to slow down. There's going to be consolidation through M&A and bank bankruptcy. 
Um, and again, you have to read the market and then you have to make the tough decisions. And if you don't do it, then your investor is going to be forced to do it. Mm -hmm. It's going to interfere in the company. But if the investor has to interfere in the company because you are not doing your job, then I think it's too late because the trust is gone. Yeah. It's like maybe it's a nice guy, but it's too nice to, to run the business. So no, November 21, this is 14, 15 months ago. Um, most companies, most startups probably at this stage are raising money, trying to have two to four years of runway. Uh, with, with that advice from Tencent and raising that big round, how, how did you think about uh, monthly burn and, and potentially extending your runway? So we raised money when we didn't need it. So our run runway today is more than 10 years. Oh. Um, and, 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 I, um, and we hope not to have to raise again because we need, but because we want for whatever, you know, liquidity for IPO and this type of things. But, but I think it's important to have your feet on the ground. And, and last year, these things of unicorn, um, sometimes I was start irritating me. And, and, and most, a lot of people were irritated by this unicorn thing mm. because it was like if you don't build a unicorn, you are not successful for the press in 2021. It was crazy. And then everyone had to be a unicorn. No, and then and it became then, everyone well, had to become a decacorn. Yeah, and then a decacorn. And then everyone thought they were great, but, and this is, you know, when you ask me how the investors contribute, one of the, one great investor we have, he said, be careful because right now, everyone is a great investor. Everyone is a great entrepreneur. Mm. There is no way to do it. You have to be very bad to do it wrongly because it was so easy. Like every, like money is like, everyone is, is a great investor. Whatever you invest is going to grow. Whatever you're going to, you want to pitch, they invest. They give you money on a PowerPoint. Um, but you have to be careful because then we start thinking we are great. And sometimes we are not that great. There is a lot of work to be done. So I think, um, I think the next two to three years are going to be really tough for everyone, including us. We have to make, to, to make the, the tough decisions. Uh, it's not going to be only one tough decision. Um, and we have to be with our feet on the ground, you know, not to lose focus. I, I think it's important also, um, um, I, I think it's important that not to forget what we are trying to do. You know, sometimes we, we set the goals and then we, we get distracted. We, we had this goal, the company, the company was created to achieve this and then we get distra distracted and we, we start going sideways. Um, that's happened in 2021 to mm -hmm. a lot of companies. And I think a lot of companies now need to go back into the, you know, what, why does the company exist? Why was the company created? In what type of business did the investors invest? And what do you promise your investors? You have to go back to that. Yep. And then trying to do something meaningful and constantly work to, to correct, the, correct the course and, and, and deliver what you promised. Because if not, we are gonna, um, companies are gonna die companies are going to die with money in the bank accounts. And Amen. that includes everyone, includes us and everyone. So yeah, we have to be very Air careful. Airbnb at the beginning of the pandemic, I think they had eight to 10 
uh, different products that they were offering their customers and made the decision of basically reducing that down to one product, going back to its their their roots and and I think they've uh, turned the turned around the business really nicely and and are you know very focused. Yeah, this is because of liquidity, right? When there is so much money in the ba- in the in the market, you start like, yeah, I'm gonna do like like this and that. How and do that. I spend and it? And when it starts, yes, yeah, we have to spend the money so that we can bring more money and increase the valuation. And then the game, once then you realize, shit, I'm building a company to raise money and not actually to solve. In my case, is to solve the problem of 40 to 60 percent excess capacity and freight robbery and truckers getting kidnapped and not getting paid and blah blah blah. That's what we exist. Yeah, everyone so two years ago was do, playing a game in, instead of building a business. Yeah. We, I think entrepreneurs, at least in Brazil, they are really good at understanding the rules of the game they are playing, and they play really well. They are like really amazing entrepreneurs. Um, and the rule of the game is, um, is I think it's um, finding a very large problem that no one else has been able to solve. And then you have to have the skills to build the product to solve that problem and to, to raise the money outside of Brazil because the money is not inside of Brazil. So you have to be able to go to China, US mainly, and convince investors to give you the money so that you can build the tools to solve this massive uh, problem that exists in the domestic markets. And that's the, the, the largest opportunity for Brazilian entrepreneurs because the complexity and bureaucracy of Brazil makes it, uh, and the size of the domestic markets makes it a unique market that no one else can fix. Yeah. But local entrepreneurs or whoever is, like in my case, I have, or, or your case, we were, a, we were willing to move to Brazil and to study the markets. And then we learn a lot and we use the bureaucracy and complexity of Brazil to our favor. Because the fact that I wasn't Brazilian and everyone told me, look, look, you don't speak Portuguese. You don't even understand the Brazilian culture. So I went to study the Brazilian culture specifically in the trucking business. And today I know the working mechanisms of the Brazilian culture for trucking better than most Brazilians on the streets. Because I study that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's a big opportunity here and and obviously we need to read the market 2021 2022 2021 was a complete different scenario compared to where we are at today and the next two to three years what's the what does the future of frechi.com look like um we are gonna stay in course fixing the problem for for the truckers in the domestic markets. Maybe once we we are comfortable enough with the job we are doing here, we are gonna expand to other markets so that we can replicate it. Today, um, today you're only in now, Brazil. Yeah, for now it's massive focus in Brazil, massive focus in one single problem that is big. Um, I think we are gonna we are gonna solve it. And then once we once we crack the code here, then we can we can move on to a to a different market. Awesome. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Federico. Okay. Look forward to doing it thank, again. Thanks you.